This is week three of our mini summer series on justice. Uh, we have spent a couple of weeks talking about some, some things that I think have, have pushed us, uh, at least for me as one who is sitting in my room wrestling through what it is that I'm wanting to present and what it is that I'm wanting to communicate to you guys as a group. It's been, it's been difficult, it's been challenging. Some of the things that we have, have seen come to focus is this idea that for many of us, our church experience has been one where Jesus is um, presented as the guy who will forgive you of your sins and allow you to go to heaven when you die and to avoid hell. For other people, that message was, was nuanced a bit and it became more something where people would go and be engaged in soup kitchens and homeless ministries and, and the, the doing of the things of faith and there seemed to be a divide between these two where we have on the one side people over here who are praying and reading their Bible and going to church and, and thinking that, that everything about their relationship with Jesus hinges on that. And there's other people over here who are doing, 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 and they don't necessarily have that relationship. And we've been trying to bring those two ideas together. We've been trying to hopefully push ourselves beyond the comfort of what our faith looks like in our living room to what our faith looks like in the public square, to what our faith looks like with the people that we work with, with the people that we share meals with at times, with the people that we live next door to, with the people that we know and that we rub shoulders with that need, desperately need the message of Jesus. Not necessarily just this message over here of read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 but a message that seems to have real life, tangible, physical change at its, at its very core. Some of the things that, that we've been talking about could be described in, in this phrase. Uh, this is from a guy named Eugene Cho, who is a pastor in Seattle. He says, if you truly believe the gospel, then you have to believe that it matters not just for your personal salvation and blessings, but also for God's pursuit of restoration, redemption, and reconciliation for the entire world. This message of Jesus is not just about me, and it's not just about you. It's about the entire world coming under his kingship and his lordship to bring about these benefits of restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. Now, in, in no way, shape, or form do I want to minimize the fact that as we come into this place, we have sins, we have Difficulties. We bring with us a long laundry list of, of wrongs that we have committed against God. This vertical relationship that people often talk about is, is fractured because of decisions that we make each and every day. But I also believe that as, as Eugene Cho is trying to bring to the fore here, this message, it matters for the sinners, but also the sinned against. Last time that we met together in this space, we were talking about how at times the gospel presentation is you're sinful, you're dirty, you're guilty, you're shameful, Jesus can fix that. But for some of you, maybe even for the people in this room today, while that's true, there are also people in your lives that have wronged you seriously and very definitively wronged you. And some of that has happened underneath of the banner of Jesus and his church where people have been, have been hurt by a supposed community of faith. 
So when they think about God and when they think about this message of salvation, the only thing that their minds can wrap around is the hurts and the past and what has gone on in their own experience. And Jesus is seen through through that lens. The gospel is more than just the message of you're sinful and Jesus can fix that. It's Jesus is here to restore and to make you whole and to bring restoration, true restoration in your life. To me, that brings an added nuance to this message and it is actually good news. It matters for the quartet of the vulnerable, which we talked about in week one, the widows and the orphans, the immigrants and the poor, the people that we collectively as the body of Christ should be attempting to care for in our everyday lives. This gospel matters for them. It matters for the broken and it matters for the marginalized and it matters for the people that might not even be in this space. It matters for the people that we drive by on the roads and it matters for the people that live next door to us and it matters for the people that we don't necessarily strive to have relationships with. This gospel is truly good news because it is the announcement of God's kingdom which is changing things here and now. It matters for these people because God's pursuit of restoration is a work of justice. So we've been spending some time talking about justice and and for a lot of us, I think we come into these discussions with this very legalistic mindset. I don't mean that in in a certain way. I mean it like a, a judicial sense where you have wrongs and because you have wrongs, you're going to get the hammer as we talked about before. But it seems to have a bit more of, of a nuance there. Um, God is, in a sense, putting the world to rights. And the really cool thing about this, the really neat thing that, that we as followers of Jesus um, get to see is that we participate in that. We, through our actions and words and deeds, get to put the world to rights through the power of the Spirit working in us to allow people to see the gospel in a way that's truly compelling that demonstrates forgiveness and Jesus' radical, inclusive love and generosity. Ken Witzma, uh, who's a pastor from Oregon, defines justice in this way, and this has kind of been our, our framework for understanding where we're going. Justice involves harmony, flourishing, and fairness, and it is based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei, as scholars and theologians would refer to it, that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. And I know for me that that phrase has been rattling around in my mind over the past month as we've been talking about these things and as I've been preparing about these these talks and really pushing myself to see if that's how I truly am living. If the gospel has so radically transformed me that I begin to see people not on the external, but I begin to see them as those who have inalienable dignity and worth. Considering justice in this way raises important questions, and we began to look at some of these questions uh, a few weeks ago, questions like who and where and why and how, who, in a sense, are the people who are suffering from injustice, what it is that's going on in their life, and how we as a church and as a community can enter into that story. If we think about these questions here, it would move us beyond the folks that we might just go to work with or the, the, the folks that are part of our normal everyday life and move, make us move beyond that to see the folks on the margins and the outskirts and the people that have been oppressed and the people that have been marginalized by society and begin to ask big questions like, why, how, who, to, in a sense, enter into their story. 
to ask the relevant questions of how did you get here? What has happened? How can I help? How can I come alongside you and help? As a Christian, I believe that this is, is, a, is a huge part of our witness and our testimony. I was at the SU library. I have found a new, very quiet place to work on certain days. I would appreciate your prayers. I think that I might be able to finish a full draft of this dissertation by the end of this week. So I would appreciate some intercessory prayers. Well, wait, now wait. Somebody has to read it and say, yeah, this is okay. And that hasn't happened yet. So pat yourself on the back for finishing something, but you know, we'll wait until somebody actually says this is okay. Okay, that's fingers crossed, prayers going up, okay. Um, but as I was in the SU library, I was meandering through the religious section. I'm, I love looking at books and I was there and I was just kind of picking books off the shelf, not doing work towards my dissertation, just reading, passing the time. And as I was there, they had a blank space on the, um, the shelf and I saw a track. And I thought to myself, Certainly this can minister to people. Certainly people that are in the religious section of the SU library might have big questions about God and the world and, and our place within it. And maybe this track might lead people to meet Jesus and have a relationship with him. But as I begin to think through that, it's also something that's divorced from this idea of story. It's divorced from this idea of relationship. It's divorced from a person who's involved and invested in these people's lives. Now, I don't want to champion evangelism just in a sense of relationship because I believe that at times we use that as a cop-out, like, oh, I don't want to go share my faith on the streets. I just want to have relationships with people, which is code for I'd like to go to the bar and have a nice drink and maybe we'll talk about Jesus and maybe we won't. But see, it, this idea of justice is asking who and why and where and how, and in order to get those answers, we have to move towards conversation and relationship. And we see that modeled throughout scripture where Jesus is eating food and drinking drink and having people just gather with him. And he, he is facing the ire of the Pharisees that say, why are you hanging out with these people that don't seem to fit? Justice is entering into another story. Martin Luther King Jr. said, any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a dry-as-dust religion. If our gospel is just the tract and it's divorced from the who and the where and the why and the how, I feel as though we're missing a very vital component. Back to the beginning, if we're just here reading our Bible, praying every day so that we can grow, 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 we have no external, we have no vision towards the people that need Jesus in a very tangible way, then I think we're missing it. In the same way, if we're involved in so much work like soup kitchens and homeless ministries and all these things and it's divorced from the relationship with Jesus, I believe that we're missing something as well and we have to bring these two things together. Any religion that professes to care about the eternal souls of people that doesn't enter into their story and ask the who, where, why, when, how is, is a bit less than, I believe. And we see that, again, modeled throughout Scripture where Jesus was one to enter into these stories with people that the religious folks of the time would say, you shouldn't be entering in to their stories. I don't know what that looks like for us as a community. I don't know what that looks like for you as an individual, but I do think that there's a call there for us to take that very first step into a how are you doing? What's your name? It sounds like Dating Tips 101 with, with Josh, but it's not. It's, it's more of um, taking a page out of Noel's book. We were at a wedding 
a week or so ago, and they had um, this drink station, and I went up there and I got a drink, and Noel was behind me, and as I'm walking away, I hear Noel's first words out of his mouth, is not, I'd like this, it's, how are you doing? What's your name? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, there you go. It's just modeling this, entering into people's lives and stories. Noel, I'm always challenged by that, and I appreciate that example that you set. But considering justice is not just who, where, why, and how, it's not just that story, but it's also asking this question of, of if. And we began to scratch the surface of this the last time we met. Justice is not, I want to hear your story, but it's also a self-reflective issue where we begin to ask the question of if. In particular, we ask if we are part of the problem. We begin to ask if we are in some way the oppressor, if we are the agents of injustice, if we have been the ones who have wronged people, if we have been the ones who have wronged them so much so that the message that we preach or the faith claims that we make fall hollow because our lives do not seem to reflect our beliefs. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But justice forces us to have this mirror where we begin to self-reflect and ask ourselves those really difficult questions of, am I involved in this? Now, it's funny that you're here, Janelle, because um, for some people, chocolate is not just a dessert. It's a way of life. It's a, it's a complete passion. It's a complete obsession. I am huge into food. Kate and I love watching cooking shows. We love watching, you know, those crazy shows where they'll go to certain restaurants. If you have Netflix, the show Chef's Table, highly recommended. It. it is so artfully shot and so well done. But the food, my goodness, the food that these people create is a work of art. I love going to farmer's markets and finding the artisanal bread or the artisanal cheese. <laughs> you have to bob your head like that when you say artisanal. Or like the summer sausages and the, like any, anybody that's putting their blood, sweat, and tears into doing something that respects the ingredients, I'm all about it. When we think about justice and we think about if we are, in a sense, the oppressors. There are conversations that are happening right now, and Janelle, I, I know that you're aware of this, but I, I don't, you might wanna plug the ears here for a bit. With regard to the chocolate industry, it's, it's, a, it's a movement for people to understand the people that are involved in the production of the chocolate bars that we eat. And there's been an ongoing discussion and there's been an ongoing um, sort of examination with the ethical practices of how chocolate ends up on our table. And for some people, they've, they've begun to unearth the fact that um, anywhere from 20 to 40 million people at any one time are enslaved to produce the things that we are demanding. One of the things that we are demanding is cocoa and chocolate. And some folks have uncovered this, this principle and these practices of the big companies exploiting the farmers and the farmers exploiting the workers and people being trafficked from one place to another to, to work into fields. And, and at the end of the day, when we're biting into our Snickers bar or whatever, I don't want to throw the Hershey company under the bus here, but like 
at, at certain times, we are very far down the line contributing to this problem of human slavery. In the same way as people begin to drink coffee and appreciate the, what is that? Is that a, is that a, a fruity note there in my latte? I don't know. Uh, Laura would know better than I. But there's, there's, there's discussions that people have about coffee and, and these things. And we've started to hear about fair trade coffee as we've heard about fair trade chocolate where it seems as though the powers that be are trying to guarantee the fact that no humans have been exploited in the production of these goods. And for some people, the rule of thumb is if your chocolate or your coffee does not say on the front, fairly traded, it's, it's a good bet that it probably wasn't fairly traded. And the people that are involved, it could be a heartbreaking story. The clothes that we wear, we want stuff cheap, not cheaply made, but we want stuff cheap and available to us. And at times, I think if we go just to buy t-shirts, it might be dependent upon human slaves. There's these really big discussions that are happening about how we as consumers are potentially involved in the oppression of people. Now, for a lot of us, we are completely unaware, and I'm not saying every time you go to Walmart, you buy a t-shirt that you should be like, banned or anything like that. I'm just saying that there's discussions that are happening where the daily decisions that we make as consumers, whether it be food or clothes or all these sorts of things, they affect lives of people all the way down the line. And at the bottom of that line might be folks that are being oppressed and placed in slavery and not allowed the freedoms that we enjoy. Now, those are, the, those are the big overarching topics, and I don't wanna just like throw that out there and then walk away and say, nah, enjoy your Snickers bar next time. Like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do that. Because if, if you were trying to live a completely ethical life with re regard to the things that you purchase, it would be very difficult and it would be very costly. And for most of us in this room, we, we are unable to do that. But I think that with more awareness, we might begin to think, where can I draw some lines in the sand? And maybe for you that becomes, I'm only gonna drink fairly traded coffee, or maybe for you is I'm gonna draw my line in the sand somewhere else, but beginning to be a people of justice that's asking the questions of if we are involved in the oppression of people is a complete, a complete shift. I don't know if you guys have ever cruised around in your Netflix account and fallen into the documentary section and watched a documentary and it becomes an eye-opening moment for you when you're, you're very different than you were before you saw it. I think that there's discussions that the church is having that is, is allowing people to see with a fresh vision with regard to some of, some of these things. Justice asks if our needs and desires are negatively affecting other people. And you can think about that on a very huge global level like that. You can think about that more, um, more at home. For some of you, it's not just the fact that your consumers and the choices that you make might have some sort of negative uh, effects down the line. For others of you, it's you are the ones who are actually uh, in places of authority. You are the ones that have the opportunity to treat people well that work for you and to love them and to care about them and also to treat the consumer well and to love them and care about them. Tim Keller tells a story in his book, Generous Justice, where someone was trying to wrestle with some of these concepts, and, and this individual was um, the owner of a car lot. And he began to look at some research, and what he, what he figured out was minorities and women usually paid more for cars. 
And the, the research seemed to indicate that white men were able to drive a harder bargain than other people, and therefore they got cars at a cheaper price. But as this individual was beginning to think about this, that didn't seem right to him, and he began what is what he was calling the no-haggle policy, which some of you, you're sitting in here, you're thinking, no-haggle, that's just a way for the car dealership to make more money. I know that you're there, and it's okay, but for, for some people, they were beginning to think of the practices that we have in our business, they're hurting these people, and I'm not okay with that. And they began to go in a different direction. Just for your viewing pleasure, I did put up there a very sweet, very classy Honda Fit, uh, this is not the base model. You can see the base model out in the parking lot. I've got one of those. It's very, it's very beautiful. And the plastic hubcaps set it off real nice, real, real nice. Um, Justice also asks if there is a hypocritical gap between our worship and our lives. In Isaiah 58, we, we saw the people of Israel entering into worship. They were doing all the right things. They were fasting. They were praying. They were singing. They were... Uh, engaged in worship in a way that, that should have been viewed as beautiful by God, yet it wasn't because their lives did not correspond to this worship. It was a completely separate act where they were the ones that were oppressing people. And in that, God could not accept their fasting, and he says, isn't this the fast that I desire, that we set the captives free? that we, in a sense, fight for justice. Isn't this the worship that I want from you, is to live a life where it's not just about the prayers and the Bible reading and the church attendance, but that is so informing who you are that everything about you mirrors and reflects my radical love for you. As Christians, I think that that should be where we're at, is everything in our lives at least the, the thing that we should be striving for is everything in our lives something that's reflecting the radical and inclusive and forgiving love of Jesus or is our doxology just the song that we sing in this beautiful sanctuary or is it something that actually informs and changes and transforms us? Part of my dissertation is about liturgy and how liturgy actually shapes people or it should shape people. The songs that we sing, the prayers that we read, the things that we do, it should be transforming you into a different person, helping you to be more aware, more conscious, more, um, more in tune with what Jesus is, is, calling, is calling us to. But these are the hard questions where we begin to ask not just how, what, when, where, why for these individuals, but we begin to ask if we are the ones that are involved in this problem, whether it be as oppressors of people or there's a complete disconnect between our worship and our lives or our beliefs and our ethics, that being our, our actions. Again, Eugene Cho says, if you truly believe the gospel, then you have to believe that it matters not just for your personal salvation and blessings, but also for God's pursuit of restoration, redemption, and reconciliation for the entire world. It has to matter for the single mom. It has to matter for the person that you have put walls up in between you and them. It has to matter for the person that you can't forgive. It has to matter for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant. It has to matter or that good news ceases to be good news. 
Another author says, choosing to follow Jesus is more than just adhering to a set of beliefs. It's an invitation to an entirely new way of living in the world. I'll get to the rest of the quote in a second. I hope you hear over the past few weeks like I've just been hammering you and, and hammering myself with these, with these ideas that it's not just about you. It's about participating with God in this cosmic renewal. It's about participating with God in the restoration of all of created, the, the entire created world. She goes on to say, the life he calls us to involves walking with Jesus and carrying the cross with him, caring for the things he cares about, seeking justice, rescuing the oppressed, living a life of love and peace. This looks different for different people. A lot of times our first inclination is to go to the poorest part of towns and say, I need to go there and give a sandwich to somebody, or I need to go there and ask somebody what their name is. But there is brokenness in Nithsdale and all of the, like, Tony Tank and all these places that don't necessarily see seem to be the sandwich ministry type of places. There is brokenness in this world and we need to have eyes to see it and to enter into this story and to introduce Jesus um, to people. So all of that's the introduction. This one's pretty brief though, I believe. It's the thing, the last couple weeks I've been reading sermons to you and I'll read them and think, okay, now I know how long it is, 22 minutes, but then I get up here and the notes go there and I just start freestyle and the next thing you know, we're in 40 minutes, Ryan's falling asleep, who knows what else has happened over here, like stuff is going crazy. So I'm gonna try to reel it in a bit. Um, but we've, we've, we've broached a lot of really big topics and tonight I just wanna talk about money for a second super uncomfortable to be sitting in the pews and hear the pastor say, time to talk about money, because that usually means that I've got the ushers placed strategically and they're gonna start coming down the rows and we're just gonna give, that's, that's not where I'm going with this um, this evening. But I think that an, an easy way to tell where the trajectory of your life is going is to look at your mint.com account and see where you spend money per month. Mint.com is a, is a free financial software where it tracks all of your spending, and then at the end of the month, you can see how over budget you are. It's very beautiful. Not really, it's just that constant guilt inducer. But it's very clear to Kate and I where we place importance, food. We spend a, we spend a lot of money on food. Um, sometimes it's centered around the people that we get to eat with, and sometimes it's not, James. Sometimes it's just about that Chipotle burrito, you know? It's, sometimes it's just about the, the rise up latte. It's just about the, the simple pleasures where we can leave home for five minutes. And, and I told you I like to stress eat in the McDonald's parking lot and just turn up my sports radio and have a filet of fish. It's what I do, guys. I'm sorry. I haven't been there in months, though, so we're okay, but yeah. As I'm working this week, if you see the Honda Fit, the base model Honda Fit in the McDonald's parking lot, just keep on driving, okay? Just give me that time, just give, just give me that time. Um, but you can see who you are and what you're invested in by seeing what you spend money on. And we're gonna talk about that. But in order to, to put this conversation in context, I want to call our attention to a few things. One out of seven people in America uh, are living in poverty. We've got people who can, who can kind of track uh, 
the poverty line, and this was back in the, the 2012 census, so the results are coming from 2011, and the poverty line was set at $23,050 for a four-person family. It's a little bit higher now, maybe like 24 and some change, but that was the poverty line for, for a four-person family. And that, that equals 46.2 million people, or 15% of all Americans and 22% of all kids are underneath of the poverty line. Now, for those of you that have global mindsets, you know that $23,000, that's a lot of money when we're talking about global economics. Um, and you're right. Even that family would be in the richest 2.24% of the, of the entire world on a, on a yearly earning scale, making them the 134th million richest person in the world. But as you think about that, 23,000 for four people, and you begin to crunch the numbers about rent and food and insurance and cars and travel and education and all these things, you start thinking, that's not a lot. So there's problems on one scale where we, we're, we're dipping into American culture and, and what's going on there. We're also seeing global poverty on an even larger scale where think about the other 97.76% of the world that's not even there, that's much, much lower. It's haunting. One out of 16 people in America are living in what's called deep poverty, and basically that means they're making 50% less of that poverty line that's been set there. So for a family of four, they make on average $11,500. And again, this is back at the 2012 census. Numbers are a little bit up, but nothing uh, to speak of. 6.6 .6 of all Americans and 20.4 million people are living in what is known as deep poverty. And again, even for these people, they'd be in the richest 14% of the world's population. But thinking about, about those numbers for a second, rent, food, education, travel, insurance, $12,000 a year is a problem. Now, for some of you in the room, you say, well, I'm in school, so I'm worth nothing. I'm actually worth less than nothing, not like on an ontological level, not, not as far as your being. Um, I don't wanna get all existential on you here. Like, you, you are worth a lot, I appreciate that, but according to the banks of the world, you are in the red, as they say. Um, the average student in Maryland takes on roughly $26,000 in student loan debt. So as you have that nice piece of paper, you begin to immediately start weeping, counting down your, what is it, six months of grace period until the payback hits. So for some of you, you're thinking about, okay, this is great, I'm glad we're talking about money and people in deep poverty, and I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we take up a love offering at the end because I would love to receive some of that, but I'm not, <clears throat> not necessarily talking about, about most of you here. I'm certainly not talking about the college students that have the potential to make, um, to make money. Eugene Cho says that racial and ethnic minorities, the disabled, women, children, and families headed by single women are particularly vulnerable to poverty and deep poverty. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God saying, you care for the widows and the orphans, the immigrant, the oppressed. And in our context today, certain demographics have, have placed themselves there in the quartet of the vulnerable. When we first started this church, 
Uh, Doug and I wanted to be super intentional about where the money went so that we could stand up here and talk about money and not have the thought of, oh, junk, I don't want to ask about money knowing that it's going to go to pay off my sweet Honda Fit base model. It's, it's, it's going to do other things. So we've, we've tried to be super intentional. This, the color is all jacked up here. I just want you to bear with me. Just know that I'm colorblind, but I'm not that colorblind, okay? Um, right now, the budget that we just passed, complete budget. Every dime that comes into this place, whether it's from you or from these external uh, mission organizations, roughly 26% of that is going out the door. If you want to think about it in a different way, when you give, roughly 30% of what you give is going out the door to mission organizations and other nonprofits that we support and that we love. And also it's going to benevolence, caring for people, not just in this room, but people outside um, that need help. We are trying desperately to be a church that cares about people, and we want that to be reflected in our budgets. Now, we have not always made great um, decisions with that. Very early on, we knew that there was a cycle of poverty and that that cycle targeted single moms. We knew that some people were working to pay for daycare, but not getting much more beyond that. So what we set out to do was we wanted to help break that cycle with certain people um, completely anonymously, which I believe was part of, part of the problem. But we would start calling local daycares saying things like, do you have anybody that's struggling to make ends meet, and do you have anybody that needs a break? And if they answered, which was a coin flip at times, because I think a lot of people have their radars up with churches wanting to help, I don't know if I trust that, which says a lot. Um, if they did respond to that, we would step in and we would write a check, and we had it in our minds that the person would come in with their nickels and dimes, like we're really playing this up in our minds, they say, I just don't have the money. And they'd say, your bill has been paid in full. Hallelujah. You know, like we just, we had this whole moment. And then the, the person who was working the desk would obviously be a Christian and she would, she would just pour her life into this person. They would like introduce Jesus to them and say, this is because Jesus loves you and the gospel is restorative. And you know, I don't know if that, I don't know if that happened. We didn't have a lot of hands on stuff. We were basically just writing checks and crossing our fingers and saying a prayer that the, the checks were going to the right people and that the businesses were even accredited it to their accounts. You know, there was, it was a whole lot of um, stuff in the air. And I think Doug told me we ended up spending somewhere in the neighborhood of $5,500 to help people with their monthly, with their monthly bills. And if you're, any of you are in the daycare world, you know that it's really stinking expensive to have kids in daycare. So having that one month or two months off might, might allow you pay off some debt to buy your kids a Christmas present? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think that if we thought about that a little bit more, we would we'd definitely do things differently. Um, the idea in and of itself might not be terrible, but the way that we were doing it was close. Um, we weren't asking questions like we have since learned from, from books like When Helping Hurts that say you can't just swoop in and write a check and then have um, restoration take place. Our heart was in the right place, but we didn't do the real homework of trying to invest in these people's stories as I've been talking about. We didn't ask, um, as a church, we weren't asking at the time, 
how we should help, what that looks like, if it's writing a check or if it's in investing ourselves in the lives of people, whom we should help. We were just asking like, hey, can you find somebody somewhere that we can give some money to? Um, under what conditions does your help proceed or end? We didn't have any of those sorts of checks and balances. Um, in what way do we help? So people talk about relief, which is just, um, my car just exploded on the highway. Uh, I just lost my job. I just need financial help in this moment to get from point A to point B. There's one step beyond where it is um, looking at development, something like the, the community garden, where it's not just, here's some money, it's come and pick fresh, free produce which is also one step behind a social reform where we begin to say, like, um, assert ourselves as people that can help make tangible, sustainable change on Camden Avenue because we are, um, I don't wanna just put this in the hands of, of legislation, but, but we're seeing the real need and we're addressing the real need by creating uh, educational, um, educational programs or we're investing in people, we're beginning to move into the places where we wanna see change happen. There's, there's just different things that are taking place here and we weren't necessarily asking those questions and we weren't asking also from where do we help? Is it just from the church? Is it in the town hall? Is it in people's living rooms? Like what does that look like? And I think that we kind of left some stuff on the, on the table there. I want to read this text to you. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, we'll just pull out a couple things and then we'll, then we'll wrap it up. Um, it says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. This is in the context of Paul writing about um, this collection that had been taken um, for people that were, were uh, in dire straits. It says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I just want to pause there for a second. I don't want this to be reduced to your giving back there. I want this to be something that completely informs how you live and how you seek to be generous. At times, we are generous from the abundance that we have. In this example, though, it seems as this church was not just giving the interest. They were going a bit farther than that. I think it's, it's at least worth considering what Jesus is calling us into as a church and cultivating us to have a life of generosity, a life that sees needs and is able to meet those, and maybe even if you're not able to meet those, to, to walk wisely and prayerfully in putting yourself out on a limb for people. Um, this continues on. It says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had, had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. 
I think that we've done a disservice as a church, and I can point the finger at me uh, in particular, and this is the last time you'll hear me be apologetic about anything with regard to um, how we talk about finances here, but I don't think that I've necessarily painted the picture for you that the way that you give to us and to others and the way that you live in generosity is an act of grace. And it's something that's reflective of the hold that Jesus has put on your heart for the other. I think we've been so scared at times that it becomes a, oh, shucks, we got something in the back and you can give your $5 if you want to. And, and we've done a real disservice to, to the cost that some of you have dutifully observed in writing that check that hurts you. And the trust that you have put in us to distribute those funds in a way that honors Jesus. I want to begin to move us to move us there as we think about that, to excel in this grace of giving, not just in the back, but in our, in our very lives. It says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. If you're hearing what Paul's saying here, um, he's, he's placing the bar pretty high. I wanna, I wanna see. I wanna see how real you are. I wanna see how legit this faith that you claim to have actually actually is, and I want it to have real, tangible effects. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Everything that we do is based on the example of Christ. And if we understand the gift of forgiveness, mercy, grace, and undeserved love, how can we do any different to anyone else? He continues, and here's the judgment uh, about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that, you, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. At times, we're the ones that are giving out of our extreme poverty. At times, we're the ones that are putting our necks out there a little bit, trusting that, that God or somebody else is going is to help us because we understand the need. It says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. We don't like talking about equality in America especially when it comes to finances because I earned that and you can't have it. This is a different cultural context, yes, but here the implications that this might have for the church. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is going back to when God was putting manna on the ground, and people would get what they needed, exactly what they needed, and no more and no less. God was supplying their needs. And Paul is taking a principle from that where we as the church supply for people who are in need. All throughout the early church, we see this, this picture of the church giving the shirt off their back to meet the needs of the people around them. 
It's no wonder that people were getting saved in droves because their lives matched up with their message. And their message was not, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Their message was, read your Bible, pray every day, and have your eyes open to meet the needs of the people around you because Jesus has radically transformed you and changed you and is demanding you to enter into their story and to become a part of it because I became a part of your story. The message translates Jesus's incarnation, that taking on a flesh as Jesus moved in to the neighborhood. And I think for some of us, this, this might be a talk where we begin to think strategically and prayerfully about what it would look like for us to move into the neighborhood, whether that be literally and we move from our convenient, nice houses into a place where God might be calling us or to move into the neighborhood and to befriend people that don't look like us, act like us, think like us, or to move into the neighborhood and to begin to give and sow into ministries that could produce tangible, real change for the sake of Jesus Christ. As a church, we are struggling and trying, I don't say struggling in, in a sense, we are, we are wrestling with these ideas and we are wanting to see Christ glorified in the way that we give into the community. We are wanting Jesus to be proclaimed and we are wanting people to know not just that they have a week off or a month off from daycare, but that they know that they are loved by the almighty God. And I hope and pray that that's not something that you're just trusting us to do, but that's something that's taking so hold of you that every interaction and thought and word and deed that you have that goes through your head will be held captive by the Spirit and given to Jesus in faithfulness so that you begin to sow in radical generosity time and finances into the people that God has placed into your life that you have a unique influence with and you begin to right some of the wrongs that the church has brought upon people, and you begin to give an image of Jesus that is compelling and inclusive and loving and so merciful. It's my hope that we become a people that's not known for how many college students come here, but we become a people that is known for how we invest and how we sow into this community and how we strive to change lives in a way that's consistent with the message that we preach each and every week.